Hi, and welcome to the Let's Talk Healthy Pets podcast. I'm Dr. Karen Becker, Dr. Mercola's Chief Wellness Veterinary Consultant, and I'm excited to share with you the latest news about pet health to guide you in keeping your animal companions healthy, comfortable, and happy throughout their lives. My goal as a proactive vet is to empower pet owners to make knowledgeable decisions to extend the lifespan and well-being of their animals. If you're looking for more pet health tips, you can also subscribe to my free daily newsletter at healthypets.mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy today's podcast. So good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good evening to you. Yes, thank you. Let me just start by asking you the basic of basic questions. So for our audience, um, I have become enthralled and quite enamored by zoopharmacognosy. But for people that have not heard of it or even know what it is, what's your best definition of what zoopharmacognosy is for someone who's never heard of it before? Yeah. Well, first of all, zoopharmacognosy is, is the buzzword. I've never used it myself. I prefer self-medication. But basically, the biological definition, the, the definition that I've kind of, of created and, and, and thought about as I've seen different examples and, 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 and studied the phenomena, is just what an animal does to maintain homeostasis. Whenever they're not feeling at their best or, or not able to function, it wants to feel better. And from a, a, a physiological perspective, something is out of balance that, that's making that happen. So they'll they'll they have different ways that they can do it, but it's basically how to maintain homeostasis, how not to feel bad. That's yeah. the simplest yeah. word. And there, there's many ways that animals can do that. Humans do the same thing. So, can you give me an example of humans doing the same thing? When when we're stressed out, we'll go to something like your tea there, or my coffee, or yeah. chocolate. That's that's a very very fundamental very basic thing that that we all do when when you know we we we're distracted we want to calm down we want to relax we want to we 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 worked our brains too too much and we just need to sit back that's a very base baseline thing animals can be doing the same kinds of things with different plants that they're selecting where they go to rest um, if they're sick then they just you, you can just slow down and 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 not put too much effort into doing things because it could be that you're just tired or you're, you're overstressed about something. But also we have foods that we like to have if we have a cold, something that warms us up. Some people like chicken soup. Here in, in, in Japan, a very simple um, rice porridge with um, pickled plums or ginger, something very easy on the stomach. It warms you up. It's it's you don't have a lot of, of things that to uh, distract you when you're trying to feel, feel better. Feel, feel, yeah. feel better. Would you put this the term self soothing? Would choosing foods that are self soothing or behaviors that are self soothing does that fall under self medication? Would you say? I've never thought about that way, but I think it fits nicely into. A, a subset of self-medication, which is which is health maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and 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 that's you know, that's that's basically the the, the level of, of of behaviors that I was talking about with chocolate yeah. or coffee or. Yeah. yeah. 
And so when I was first introduced to this, self-soothing makes sense. And of course, with humans, we can end up self-soothing in ways that are quite detrimental to our physiology. But but self-medication, intentionally selecting substances for therapeutic value or for... um, I think you use the term passive prevention. I almost, when I read, when I read your definition of passive prevention, I think of it as almost proactive prevention where animals consume things to prevent things from occurring in their body. And that's different, quite a bit different than self-soothing. But do you think that, yeah, do you think that there's an innate, do you think there's an innate knowing between passively consuming and therapeutically consuming? That's something that I'm still trying to, to, to find ways to demonstrate. But when I use the word passive prevention, I've never thought of it as, as a cognitive process. Okay. It doesn't have to be. Okay. Um, it's okay. just things that okay. they crave, for example, and things like medicinal food this whole whole category that I've, I've, I've put together but it's it's food with a lot of um, medicinal value it, it can either um, it induce or, or, or stimulate immune response or it can can counteract um, bacterial growth in in the stomach or something from yeah. from eating something spoiled or what whatever it, there's different levels but I think I, I've never thought of it as a cognitive process okay. therapeutic right. um, treatment is definitely a, a cognitive process based on, on all the things we see leading up to that act of, of taking a plant with um, medicinal properties. Mm-hmm. One, because the um, effect or the benefit is, is, is fairly quick. With medicinal foods, it's like human use of, of certain foods that at, at certain times of year when you're more susceptible to Malaria, for example. Um, Nina Etkin in, in, in Hawaii had developed this concept, and she did a lot of work in Africa looking at how people during the times when malaria transmission is highest, they'll eat certain things, and they recognize those things as having an, an effect against malaria. But it's also a food. It, it, it's, it, it's a seasonal food. Mm-hmm. But when we get to animals, I think there are seasonal foods, but it may not necessarily be a cognitive process that I'll take this so that I won't get this. Do you think, though, that there could be cravings associated? I think that I. Yeah. okay, because that makes sense, especially with the gear gut biome. Seasonal eating along with cravings makes sense that you would be drawn to consume more of one type of medicinal food at a certain time of year. That would confer health benefits. Okay, that makes sense. And then with with therapeutic. Um, treatments. Those are specific behaviors. And that was the zoopharmacognosy that I was introduced to for domestic animals, offering specific types of foods to domesticated dogs and cats for a therapeutic reason. And that was just, that was in 2017 for me. And it was my, as a wildlife rehabilitator, of course, I've seen animals self-medicate. I just never thought about offering it to dogs and cats. And it really shifted my world. My world shifted by a degree when I started thinking about this in terms Mm -hmm. of offering it to domesticated dogs and cats as a means of a means of their ability to, to have the option 
of things that they would like to introduce to their own bodies with a dosing strategy that is their own choice. It was profound to me. And yet when <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I talked about it both on social media and I wrote about it, just hellfire rained down <laughs> from my colleagues and they said, We knew you were a witch doctor. This this <laughs> confirms it. And to be honest, being called a witch doctor is not offensive to me. I somewhat <laughs> It, very, you know, shamans are amazing people in my world. So I'm like, well, I, I don't, you can hurl that insult. I'm not going to take it as such. However, my colleagues were incredibly, not just skeptical, they were, they were adversarial towards me bringing this up. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, because what their main points were that dogs or cats are too stupid to discern. And so I want to talk about that a little bit later. But when you've, I know that you didn't set out thinking you would have a career looking at your primatology background as identifying self-medicating traits in primates primarily. But you had quite an experience, I believe it was in 1987, that you had a similar experience where you were able to say, my gosh, this is something that needs to be studied because people aren't. Can you you explain what happened when you were, when when you were able to first recognize that this is an area that needs to be investigated? Well, people had been talking about self-medication before, and actually the word zoopharmacognosy was brought into the um, discipline in 1983 by a guy named Eloy Rodriguez, a, 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 a plant chemist, and a primatologist, um, Richard Rangham. And at the, at the time, it was based on bits and pieces of information, but it wasn't a, an out, a, a pull-out study to actually look at the causes and effects. It was a lot of um, hypothesizing about what could actually be going on, and, and that was with leaf swallowing, the habit of folding and swallowing leaves. And they were saying, that they, because it happens early in the morning, maybe it was like a cup of coffee and this and that, um, but they started to, to think about the idea of, of animals like humans taking things to to treat themselves or to cure illness, but they really didn't know what the illnesses were being treated, and they they just kind of left it open, being careful perhaps, but they, they made a lot of assumptions, and then so that kind of hit a wave until about 1985, 86, 87, but people were 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 growing suspicious because some of the things they were proposing didn't turn out to be actually to actually um, be supported by evidence. Perhaps, for, for example, the, the, the leaf, they're talking about one species of leaf that um, somehow a antibiotic was found from the leaf, but it turns out later that no one else could find it in, in the leaf. But so there's all of this, this hypothesizing, this, the ideas about what animals might be doing and how powerful what they are doing can be and it, it hit more the, the popular press than than through peer review. So a lot of people said, wait, put on the brakes. This 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 doesn't sound right to to us. So I, I wasn't particularly interested in that field at all. In fact, when I was um, following the, the chimps that day, the animal that was self-medicating wasn't even my target, but she was within the group of, of individuals that I was following. I was looking at the role of Old, older chimpanzees, aged chimpanzees within society, 
Are they respected? Do they have specific roles? How are they treated? How do they treat others? Um, so I was focusing on young and old um, individuals and just seeing how they interacted and, and what the benefits and, and whatnot could be. Um, but that was something completely different from what I had done up until then in primatology with, with Japanese macaques mainly. Um, but on that day when I saw Chaoshiku, that's that's the um, adult chimpanzee female that, that sat down in, in front of this plant that I'd never seen them eat before, she pulled out a branch and peeled off the bark with the leaves. So she was only going after the very flexible pith. And I was working with um, Mohamedi Saif Karunde. He was a, 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 a game officer with the Tanzanian National Parks. And he'd been on this project with studying the chimpanzee since its initiation in 1965. Um, so he knew all of, he, he, he was born and raised in that forest. He knew all the animals. He was first a hunter, but he was also a traditional healer through you know, a whole lineage of traditional healers using the plants in that forest to treat humans. Um, but I didn't really, we, we didn't really have many conversations about that topic until that day. He would, he would tell me about plants that, that they use for this way or that way whenever we couldn't find the chimps. But when I asked him what this plant was, because I'd never seen the music before, I had been studying them already for six and a half months, um, over two different periods, and I said, "What's this plant?" And he he gave me the name Mujonso in um, Mutongwe. So okay, so we, we we continued watching, and then I said, "Well, what do, do you have a use for it? Since you have a name for it, he says yeah, it's it's medicine for us." Oh, oh, what kind? It was very powerful medicine. And then he's he's very quiet again, and we we continue watching, and that that thought about humans using it for medicine made me think, well, what's going on with Chaoshiku today? And I started thinking back, everything, all the glimpses of, of what I could see, what I could remember about her that day, following her within the group. So we followed her the rest of the day. She was very sick. She wasn't doing very well. She didn't eat much else besides um, the pith of this this bush, Vernonia. Um, uh, amygdalina it's in the composite family she went to bed very early that day the next morning she hadn't traveled very far from where she was she was with a different group of females and they were actually following her letting her they, they were slowing down their pace mm -hmm. to look after her while she was looking after herself and they actually looked after her infant as well a very young infant who she was not able to take care of Females who had traveled with her throughout her life, they transferred from another group into our study group when they were younger. So they had this long relationship with each other, and the, the females were looking after Chaoshiku's infant. Hmm. The next day, around noontime, they were all settled down, taking their afternoon nap, and all of a sudden, Chaoshiku jumps up. Up until then, she had only been moving very slowly, a few meters at a time, resting eating nothing, moving a little bit further. But after that afternoon nap, it was just a complete turnaround in her stamina. Yeah. And she literally walked at a very clipped pace for an hour 
to get to a food source. And we were running to keep up with her. We, we didn't want to lose. We were going up and down, up and down these mountains. And then she spent the next hour and a half or so eating. Yeah. So yeah. that was just the everything that I had I made myself expect to see if it would, would happen or not, so that I could say, okay, it was just a fluke or, or whatnot. But it was that one incident that just really changed everything about what I what I studied in chimpanzees, and it, it added on a completely new area of, of my research. I had to study parasite <clears throat> post-ecology to understand what could possibly make her sick. So I yeah. became a parasitologist and started looking at ethanol medicine and and it just went on from there, Pharma, pharmacology, everything. And I am quite aware that you, you have done enough background science. I know that, for instance, you had you laboratory analyzed the plants to determine what the polyphenols were and what the medicinal components were, so that you were able to objectively as a scientist published data that would corroborate your hypothesis that that these mammals were consuming these foods for for uh, as a deworming agent versus an anti-inflammatory so you had fantastic ammunition to defend yourself against your colleagues that, that, yeah I, I bet it did initially when you first started talking about this and actually even even now when you have done, you've just accumulated a mass, a tremendous amount of data to demonstrate what each plant, the medicinal components of each plant, plant, you know, all of the individual chemical components that help you determine why animals are eating them at a certain time of the year and the volume that they're eating them. And then the end result down to like counting the parasites, which is wonderful. That is definitely affirming to other scientists that you have done all of your homework and that your hypothesis leads to a legitimate conclusion. Has that reduced the amount of professional criticism that you've had, or have you still felt it? I haven't really felt a lot of criticism in the very beginning, before I started putting out all of this this data, and we saw the same um, use of the same plant by different females, and we could measure the, the drop in, you know, we, we kept adding on a, examples. And we started looking at new things as well, and we started looking at other species. So there became a point where it just, you know, why didn't we think of this before? It seems so obvious, so simple, so so necessary for animals to be doing this. Um, in in the very beginning, even the people who, who I, I shared that field site with, they said, oh, no, the chimps eat that all the time. Chimps never get sick, but they weren't looking for sickness. They were looking at everything that went in their mouth as food, and that was that was the end of of, of the discussion. Yeah. Um, yep. So it it just takes seeing something from a different angle, collecting the data, the the evidence, and what I found really really exciting is that it's not just chimpanzees. Yeah. In yeah. in 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 the beginning, people were were, were thinking that I was. I was making too much about it because it was chimpanzees and as well. The rest of the animals couldn't possibly be doing this. Chimpanzees are smart like us. Um, but we know now, and I'll, I'll, I'll bet any amount of money I don't have, <laughs> that every species on the planet, every living organism on the planet is doing something to 
maintain homeostasis. It's all about survival. And what's really cool is whether you're a bird, whether you're a small mammal, a large mammal, a marine mammal, a terrestrial mammal, arboreal, whatever, very similar patterns are emerging. So it's a very, very long history of very, you know, everyone is doing the same kind of thing to counteract the same types of illnesses. Parasites is, is, is a big part of the whole mm -hmm. picture, but it's not everything. That's just because we focused on parasites. So, and I agree with you in the sense that parasites makes the most logical sense, but you have really sound examples of like bats and birds and raptors and ants. I know you gave the example of all of those animals using like the fourth mode, the, the fumigation mode of where they're intentionally picking substrates or substances that help minimize ectoparasites or reduce lice or biting mosquitoes or whatever that is annoying to them. They're using their environment in a multitude of different ways, but you've been able to substantiate that and prove it enough that I think you've really minimized any argument because you've documented it and proven it. When it comes to, and our esteemed colleague, Fred Prevenza has also been able to document that with large yeah. animals, but yeah. but when it comes to domesticated animals, this the the research hasn't been done. So what we have is a lot of a lot of people surmising what dogs and cats might be doing, but the research isn't there, and so there's a lot of veterinarians saying dogs and cats over the last several hundred years as we've created blue-eyed dogs and bald dogs and stumpy-legged dogs and as man has created breeds we've removed their innate instinct and their ability to actually discern anything in their environment and while i think certainly that humans have muddled with enough genetics that we may have um, dampened some instinctual or innate ability. I don't think that we've entirely removed it, um, and yet we don't have a we don't have studies to be able to to back that up. What are your thoughts without any studies available? When we think about some of these innate behaviors that both dogs and cats do, but primarily dogs, dogs kept in captive environments, many of them will lick excessive carpet fibers and they're craving Kleenex and things out of the garbage. They're, it's, they're, they're participating in pica. They're eating non-edible foods for some reason. And of course, it's human nature to assume that they're being bad dogs or that they're bored, but there's probably a whole lot more to it than dogs choosing to be bad dogs. When people say, Animals have been bred to the point that they can no longer discern their ability to self-medicate. What is your response? Show me the evidence. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that, that doesn't make sense that they would lose that 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 level of physiological function. I, I think they. You no, know, they 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 take on different habits because they're bred for different purposes um, and, and come out with some really bizarre endpoints in, in, in how that animal is now and, and what, what its ancestor, the wolf, was and, and did. But I still think that um, 
we need to, to look into it. We need to, to, to demonstrate those things. Often, even scientists will go at it in, in the wrong way, trying to find evidence to, to support their ideas based on nothing, not based on observation of what's going on. Um, I think that given the, the proper environment, things, the uh, objects to select from, that yes. they may behave quite quite differently. If, if they're stuck in a house all day, of course they're going to eat, they're, they're going to chew on the carpet, they're going to eat plants that, that are in the house or whatnot, because that's the closest thing to what what they're craving, which is probably fiber in, 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 in one level of, of, of this. Um, I, I don't know what, if, if there are certain plants that, that, that dogs tend to chew on more in, in households, um, based on human preference for what they like to have around. Um, if there's some kind of, of, of a, um, a, a sensory cue that would drive them towards that, or if it's just a, a visual thing that they want, want to chew on, on a plant for some reason. Um, the, the habit of, of swallowing grass by dogs and cats, everyone knows about it, but there, there isn't a lot of work done on it, um, but if you look at 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 carnivores in in, in particular, but but omnivores as well, it can be a, a lot of primates are doing the exact same thing. Bears are doing it throughout the northern hemisphere. All four species of bear are folding and swallowing grass, and they're expelling parasites. Yep, geese. Yep. Canadian snow geese are doing the same thing before migrating. The bears do it before hibernating. Um, dogs have their own reason for, for, for doing that. Some people say that it's, it's, it's to um, relieve um, acidosis in the stomach, whatnot. But some discomfort leads, leads to that behavior. And if they're, they're, they're given bad choices, they're going to behave badly. Yeah. Out of, out of character for that species, perhaps. Yeah. Well, and out of desperation, you sure. know. I think when, Aunt, when we look at the types of grasses that dogs particularly want to seek out, when they're given their 10-minute walk once a day, they're not just going into the yard and eating Kentucky Blue, like sod. They're specifically seeking out. They're on a mission. And that alone would tell me that they're they're not interested in eating any grass when they have an option they're pulling on their leashes desperately craving a certain grass that probably has some medicinal property that that they're seeking and because we haven't studied this in depth my very rudimentary response to my clients into the world is if if your dog is that obsessed just craving the tall, broad grasses that grow between the cracks, cracks of the sidewalk, let them eat it. Let, yeah. I mean, just, just let them self-medicate in that way. And I would assume that you probably uh, would wholeheartedly agree that animals, regardless of their level of domestication, if they're seeking out specific substances, as long as they are obviously non-toxic, we need to let animals fulfill that need to consume those, those raw materials. Most definitely. And, and they are very selective. Um, the the animals in the wild that 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 eat grass or, or or leaves very very specific species within their habitat, and even across subspecies of of, of of great apes, for example, 
chimpanzees, gorillas, and bonobos across Africa, they're all selecting from a group of plants that have rough leaf surfaces, sometimes even the exact same species because they're so prominently rough on the surface. It's, it's like sandpaper. Literally, we would, we would use those leaves in the field to um, polish the handles on our machetes. Wow. So it's a very specific set of plants that, that they're looking for. It's not just any grass out there. Very specific plants with very specific characteristics. And the bears and the geese, um, civets, we, we've studied civets in, in Taiwan. It's a small carnivorous um, mammal. It will go after the same kind of grass that the bears and the geese are doing, and they're expelling parasites in the same way. But it's a specific species. It's not just anything exactly, out there. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. And, and so what are your thoughts about this innate ability, this, this innate sense, instinct driving this, of course, versus it being an emulated or learned behavior. Um, because that's one of the things that veterinarians, uh, companion animal veterinarians will oftentimes say, is that if there was any ability for domesticated dogs and cat to, cats to discern what they would need, it would be taught from their parents in a group, in a family group setting, and that doesn't happen with domesticated animals. We take them away and wean them at eight weeks, and then they're raised by humans. And yet you give a really profound example uh, in one of your lectures that the, the way that the leaf is entered into the mouth can be longitudinal or longitudinal, you know, that different groups, different um, troops or groups would, depending how they eat their leaves, is maybe a social norm. But mm -hmm. it's the choosing of that leaf that is innate. So how they eat it may be cultural, but right. but the leaf itself, even naive animals that didn't have that uh, parental or group guidance for social norms, they still knew what leaf to choose. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. Um, the, with with leaf swallowing, it's 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 a purely physical property that they get um, the response that they are looking for from it. It it decreases gut transit time, so they want something that's indigestible, and they go out of their way to eat it in a way that's that's making that even more possible by not chewing it. Um, and, it and an example there, there's one sp the, the species that they call African sandpaper. Um, Ficus exasperata. When there's not a lot of other food around, they will actually chew that leaf very finely and eat it and get the nutrients from it. But when they're using it to expel parasites, then they'll fold and swallow without chewing. Um, so they're, 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 they're looking at even at the same plant in different ways according to how they want to use it. With like like the chemicals, there's something about this physical property in the leaf that kind of guides how that leaf is processed. Um, but I, it's I don't it's not innate to, to go after rough leaves when you feel a certain way because the the chimps that we were we studied three different groups of chimpanzees, two in in Italy and one here in Japan, um, and they were all healthy. They had no parasites. They were just given a plant that they'd never seen before. 
with yeah. rough leaves, exactly the same roughness as the animals in, in, in Africa were using, Tanzania. Um, and the properties of those leaves led the first individual to kind of play around with it. Many others were very, very frightened of it. They, they, they didn't like it. They, they, they would refuse to do anything with it. But when they saw someone else do it, then they started going about it in the same way. So in, in the case where it's a socially living species like chimpanzees and wolves are very social. So, so, so if you take the domestic, the, the, the domestic dog out of the, the equation for a second, wolves are doing the same thing. They're learning from their parents what, what in the environment you, you put in your mouth. Most of it's meat, of course, but also these these leaves. So they have or this in, in, in the case of wolves, it's long grass. that's very, very stiff, very fibrous and kind of rough on the edges, but it, it's hard to digest. Um, so they do have to learn which plants in the forest to use. Um, so it's like re, there, there, there is a, a mechanism within these species that do it that allows them to reinvent the wheel, reinvent folding and swallowing. So these naive captive chimps who had never had the benefit of living in, in a forest with all the different kinds of plants, never had the benefit of adults to show them what to do. When they get a rough leaf, some of them will end up folding and swallowing. And it's after that process is finished and that the transit time is reduced up to six hours. Wow. Um, and then, then I think the individual learns itself the benefits of, of, of using that plant in that way. Okay, so it is more, not so much that they're emulating someone else in their social group, as they have figured out for their own physio physiology, when I eat this this way, I feel better. So it's they're, they're teaching themselves more so. They're, they're learning from the the consequences of the behavior they've watched others do. And yeah. it's the roughness of the leaf that it's, it's a, a, there's a term called affordance that the kind of directs how that leaf can be eaten mm -hmm. if you put it in your mouth. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, in all three populations that we studied, the first response was, mm, what is this? You know, I, I, I don't want to mess with this. And in one group, very in interestingly, the first individual we gave it to, we, we gave each individual a branch with the same number of leaves, and we gave it 10 times to each individual over the, the period of our study. But the first individual we gave it to was, an, was the highest ranking adult male. We gave it to him. He looked at it and he didn't like it. He threw it down. The first trial of the other individuals in that group we gave it to, they did the exact same thing, hmm. just like this, this, this male did. But the second round, we gave it first to an adult female, and she tried it again, and she said, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give this another try. And she started playing around with it. And in all the cases, the first naive instance of, of folding and swallowing, they kind of play with it a little bit in their mouths. But she began to fold and swallow, and individuals who were comfortable being close to her, who, who she would accept being close to and who they felt com comfortable getting close to her, would watch. And in their next incident that they were given a branch, they did what she did. 
So they learned not to avoid it. They learned to, to, to put it in their mouth and to fold it. The first thing they, they learned was how to put it in the mouth. Like you mentioned earlier, take the leaf from the side or from this way. And it, everyone in that group ended up conforming to the way she put that leaf yeah. in her mouth. But they all folded and swallowed, except for that adult male who never changed his mind. So that tells you something about old adult males. <laughs> it, it, it does. It does. But it also tells you something that Fred Provenza said many, many times that that the maternal wisdom for many mammals is very critical. It's almost the difference between getting it done and getting it done exceptionally well. That having maternal, having some type of guidance in this situation, you know, you had a, a strong female being able to say, this is how I'm doing it. And then the entire group adopted that. Fred was saying that, that for, you know, for young pronghorns and young goats and young sheep, uh, domesticated, both wild and domesticated, that learning the terrain was absolutely critical that, that babies learn that wisdom from their mom. That is a piece that's entirely missing with domesticated pets gone. And that also makes sense why then trial and error kicks in where yeah. animals have to discern, oh, I overdid it too much grass. I had a purging effect. Whereas if I eat just this much, it works well for me. But there is this, this, need to be able to experiment with threshold and dose and, and, and rate of ingestion and all those things that the individual has to figure out that resonates with their own physiology. But that also makes sense while there, why there is so much more trial and error with dogs and cats, because there is no family learning. No and, guidance. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And if they had that, then these traditions would continue and they would be they, they wouldn't be messing around with, with, with plants inside the house. Yeah. They would go out. They would know yeah. what their mom took. Told they them would do to this do. Yeah. 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 Fred, Fred yeah. And, and one of his protégés, um, um, Juan Vilauba, were, 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 were very they, – they did some very interesting work to, to show that once – that they could teach they, – they, they could provide the experience to, to, um, to sheep, I, I believe – and then once they had that, then they would pass that on to their infants. So you can reintroduce these very important traditions, even into domestic animals, if we don't take the pups away from their, their mothers so early, perhaps. Let them, instead of mass breeding in, in, in kennels where they have no exposure to the outside, you can probably instill a lot of things that they, they actually already have. They, they just need that experience. They need that guidance to, to get started. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that that's the aspect that makes sense where when that piece is missing, the trial and error component can make it look, dogs oftentimes make poor decisions. But part of that is because they didn't have any maternal guidance. Um, so yeah, that, that makes total sense. So when, with the mammals that you've studied, yes, go ahead. Um, an, an interesting example in Africa, in, in West Africa, Vernonia amygdalina, the, the, the local name translated to English means kills goats. Wow. They, in, in, that, in that culture, they say that the goats eat too much and die because they're domesticated. They don't know how much to eat. But I've talked to goat herders in Uganda or, or one, one man. He's, he's a scientist, actually. We were, we, we were together in a different forum. And I was presenting work on self-medication, and he still has a herd of goats 
in Kampala, outside of Kampala, but he's in, in the university here in Japan studying. Um, and he said that his goats go to that same plant and they know how to use it yeah. and they, they, they use it to treat themselves with parasites. So it's that difference in experience. Yeah. Perhaps in West Africa, that where that, when that name came about, they had a different different practice for um, raising their their goats. I, I I don't know, but I think like like we've just been discussing, given the, the the proper environment and guidance, then they are capable of doing those things. And it's possible to even maybe train dogs as adults ourselves to to you know give them things to to, to select from. Yes, and and see which one they prefer, but not the house plants, not not the carpet, that kind of thing. And I think that just having choice. I think so many pets these days, so many animals that we keep confined, there's there is no choice, or the choices are so minimal that this leads me to my next to my next question about wild animals that do have a choice, or even captive animals that are in a somewhat contained environment, if their first choice, Michael, for, for what they would desire for a first choice for as, as a self-medication plant, if that's not available, have you seen animals have a second and third choice? Do they have a, a preferred food? And then if that's not available, do they have an option two, three, and four or no? Well, in the, the in, um, Mahale, the site where I've done most of this work with, with, with chimpanzee self-medication, the plants they use for for leaf swallowing there's over 10 different species so they they, they have they, they have a selection of things according to where they're at okay um Vernonia amygdalina i don't find any other species in their habitat like that and that's that's the the, the go-to plant during the rainy season when their their um, in, infection levels of strongyle nematodes go up esophagostomum stephanostomum We've looked at all the other parasites. That's the that's the parasite they're targeting. That's the one with the peak seasonality. That's the one where the the um, infection in intensity drops within 24 hours after they use that plant. Mm. Um, but what's interesting with that, in in relation to your question, normally they eat the pith, not the bark or the leaves. And there's a reason for that. In in the chemistry that 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 my my colleagues and I did. There are more toxic, different um, um, sesquiterpen lactones in the bark and the leaves in higher concentrations than in the pith. But mm. they all have mm. these steroid glucosides, which are, are also very, um, very medicinal. Um, but normally they'll, they'll go for, for that pith. They'll avoid mm. the bark and the leaves. But one male who was very sick, and he eventually died a few weeks after that, maybe within a week he, he had died, his infection was so high, he was passing adult worms through the urethra. Oh. They, they, had, they had gotten out of the intestinal environment where they live, and they were coming out the urethra. Um, and there was no pith. So he was actually going after the leaves, which probably wasn't the best thing he could have done, but was the only thing he could have done. But I only have that one example. But there are a lot of different plants within their habitat that possibly could be doing the same function, but we just we don't know how many. And did you see 
groups of animals move like during the rainy season when the likelihood of certain diseases would be higher? Would animals move to the location of the plants that best serve them during that time? Would they move to to be in a location to be to have access to have access to certain medicinal plants, uh, or not necessarily? Well, all, all all plants have their preferred habitats, and if you if if you live in a very diverse environment, there'll be certain places where certain plant species grow as communities, um, as one species and as communities of species, similar species or plants with similar preferences. A, a lot of sunlight, less water, more water. Um, so within the habitat that, that, that the chimpanzees lived in, in, in Mahala in Tanzania, um, we had all of these different um, sub-habitats. And, and it was about a 70 square kilometer area that they were moving around in and we would follow them every day from our base camp which was in the middle of that and they would go north to south north to south and they go more north or more south or more higher up on the mountains according to the season according to fruit availability but when individuals would get sick they would go to the was they would go out of their way to go to sites where those plants were, um, either for swallowing or for bitter pith chewing. And whenever a group during the rainy season was heading in that direction, I, my, all, all, all my radar was up. I was looking at all the individuals trying to, to see who would, who would do this. Um, so it's very predictable when they're in a certain area that they would do it. And individuals that are extremely sick, most often they'll move away from the group anyway, and, and either yeah. not travel very much at all or go directly to a plant that they need. So it's very obvious that they're making the Got decision it. to go there. That's, that is just, that has to be remarkable to watch because once you know that pattern of when you know that an individual branches off, you know that they're going to self-medicate. And then the question is why? And you've had, you've done some really amazing studies looking at the medicinal components of some of these plants, as well as the the medical conditions potentially for why some of these individuals would consume them. And you have found that in addition to being anti-parasitic, some of these plants have anti-inflammatory components. I mean, there's just tremendous diversity of what some of these plants can do. And in turn, I think you've mentioned your tracker before, being a medicine man as well. Much of the human botanical medicine has come about for many of these indigenous people from watching the animals self-select. Right. And, and you actually, I think, have a story about where you were able to identify some anti-neoplastic, anti-cancer, at least a anti-cancer substance that has gone on to, you were able to identify it in a plant and have it go on to be turned into a to a human pharmaceutical. Is that is that correct? Well, it's it's the same plant, um, Vernonia amygdalina, the the bitter pith that the chimpanzees are using, and it's a sesquiterpen lactone. There, there's a couple different compounds within the plant that have this anti-cancer property, but sesquiterpen lactones, which are also cytotoxic, um, have very effective anti-cancer anti-tumor growth properties. There was someone who, who did a study in the 60s, perhaps, using that compound and looked at anti-cancer properties. 
we've followed up looking at um, skin cancers in, induced in rats, and we, we were, my colleagues were able to demonstrate that up to stage three, it was reversible completely, 100%. Um, so we published that in 92, I, I believe. And there's a group in Malaysia just in the last three years or so with much more refined technique, we're able to actually demonstrate the genetic effect of those compounds on, um, on I forget the, the, the cancer cell, but it's, 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 it's the big one for um, human breast cancer. They've actually found that that compound sure. switches off the mutation that, that, that leads to, to the development of, of tumors. And they cite our work in all of those in, in both of those papers. So some wow. somehow we, we we got their interest in that. But I think eventually people would have have looked at that just because of the compounds that are known to be in that plant. And there that those same group of compounds are now known to be in many different species around the world. So I think hopefully more more and more attention will will come about it. And if in in some way directly yeah. in indirectly what we've done has helped direct people's attention to that then that's great we've yeah, exactly. yeah. we've we've never had the facilities to to maintain a patent and and, and to do the, the drug development I think that's just not our our stick no. but um but but yeah. what I would there, hope I would exactly what I would hope is that your group would be excel at uh, is to provide the excitement, the foundational relevance of looking towards nature to be able to provide cues of what we should be studying because there's animals that, and lots of different animals that are specifically choosing some of these plants. And so identifying what they're choosing them for and what medicinal benefit is in those plants is certainly your expertise. And it certainly begs the question, how many of these undiscovered substances do we, I mean, there has to be thousands of them that we don't know about, but animals do, and they're using them to self-medicate in ways that we have yet to discover. So if anything, I would hope that the work that you're doing is inspiring for people to consider looking at plants um, and plant properties that have not been evaluated for a whole host of medicinal benefits, but letting animals being the guide in terms of when to choose certain plants and, and for what purpose. I think that that's totally fascinating. Um, and even, I know you had mentioned malarial treatment that, that some of the, some of the apes that you were studying were specifically medicating for malaria and that the plants had equal efficacy to, to some over the counter drugs. Um, well, we never demonstrated that they were infected with malaria when they were taking these plants. That was something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and now people are actually trying to do that. There's there's money and, and things for that. When I was doing it, I approached the Wellcome Trust in, in the UK, and it still wasn't a big thing. They didn't think that, that wild apes would have malaria, um, so we, we didn't get any funding for it. But now... There are people looking at that, but we, right. as as a potential function of those plants, we we, we tested um, drug resistant strains of 
falsoparum, um, plasmodia falsoparum, the the um, the, the idiotic agent, yeah, the agent for malaria, and it was more effective. It, it was effective against drug resistant malarial strains. Wow. And the local people, the Watongwe, use that plant for malaria. You, you take yeah. a couple leaves, you crush it, and you drink the juice. It's very, very bitter, um, but it's very, very effective. They, they, they were controlling um, tropical malaria with Vernonia. And there's so many different properties that, that these plants have because of even one compound can have so many different yeah. properties. So anti-cancer, um, lowering fever, anti-parasitic. One, one, one action can have a lot of, of effects on the physiology of, yeah. of an animal. So it's not just finding new compounds. Something that I've always, new way those different different functions for the same plant yeah. and by looking at how animals benefit yeah. from that and you know it opens up a whole a whole lot more than 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 we're perhaps thinking of at the moment yeah it well and it's an, it's certainly inspiring to hear stories like that and to know that um, at least indigenous people have been able to use animals as guides in terms of what to eat and what not to eat for millennia. It's just really exciting that people are beginning to look at the medicinal properties of why animals repeatedly consume certain substances. And there's just so much to learn in that room. It's exciting. It's really exciting. Talk to me a little bit about coprophagia or poo eating. That's something <laughs> that dogs do regularly and humans are perpetually trying everything they can to get their dogs to not eat poo. Do do primates eat poo? A lot of animals do. Yeah. Um, chimpanzees will do it. And what, what, what they're doing, though, is they're eating a fruit. The seeds are hard to digest. They eat the fruit, and then the, the, the seeds come out in the poo, and then they pick it out of that. Sometimes they'll even pick it out of other species' poo and eat. Um, so there, there, originally there, there was a a, a reason for doing that. Um, whether animals are are trying to get nutrients out of their own poo that that become available because they weren't in in, 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 in that they were given, and two dogs are are given such a small fixed diet, I think we we become satisfied that all the proper vitamins and carbohydrates and everything are in there. But animals need more than that. Yeah. And they they could be sensing that those things are in their feces. They've been released from the food that they're given after the digestive process. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I'm sure there's an explanation. Yeah. For well, and certainly because dogs are on this fixed ration, because they're eating ultra processed food. And like you said, certainly it meets vitamin and mineral requirements, but it's the same monotonous diet day after day, month after month, year after year. Their microbiomes are just not diversified. And I think that oftentimes dogs will come across any type of poo, 
rabbit poo or another dog poo or any type of wild animal poo. And oftentimes they're just seeking to diversify their microbiome. So they will recycle or try and incorporate other strains by, by consuming poo. But for That's some, for difficult. some dogs, it's, um, it's, they're obsessive about it. And some dogs are very particular They're They have very good standards when it comes to what poo they eat and how much and at what time of the year. So they're very discerning. And I think that that's what's so fascinating for me is that when dogs oftentimes want to participate in these behaviors, they're very specific about the type of fiber they want to eat and when they want to eat it. And then, of course, why? We, we don't necessarily know the why, but they're, they're not just wanting to eat anything. They're, they have clear desires and needs that we are not necessarily fulfilling as their guardians. Yeah, we 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 did a study on a captive on, on two captive groups of Japanese monkeys here at the institute. One lived in a very very traditional concrete walled gravel ground metal structure so they can climb on and everything. And the other one was the natural forest. We just put a a, a fence a big fence around it. Yeah. And it was the, the vegetation that that, that's, that this species normally uses. Both groups were given the same amount of monkey chow. It's 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 a, a, a prescribed food for primates that has all the all of the, the proper balance, everything they'll need. Every, everything they'll need. Um, and both groups spent the same amount of time eating the monkey chow, but the group that had over a hundred species of plants in its environment to choose from spent again the same amount of time feeding on those items. Wow. And what they ate varied according to their age, to their sex, and to season. So they're all getting needing different things out of the environment. When they're available, they're spending a lot of effort to get that beyond what we what 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 the the um the the staff give them to keep them breeding and, yes and a lot I have you have you been able to I love that I love that study and I love that you're comparing those have you looked at lifespan with those two groups of animals or not I mean have you is the study going on long enough have you been able to look at like you know comorbidities and lifespan or none of that because that's a fascinating study <laughs> we we haven't looked at that but one thing that i i i've tried a couple times to get other graduate students that that um preceded the student who did that that study to look at things like fecundity weight um subcutaneous fat levels the ones in the forest looked so much better and we we have the data so we can we can we can eventually get to this, but I think the benefits of, of living in that forested enclosure yeah. with the other plants that they can select themselves was so much better for them. Um, if if you're you're looking at at, at managing a, a colony, I, I I I don't really do that work, but I, I try and make the best of the facilities we have here yeah. to do these kinds of of, of, of studies. I, I prefer to follow the animals in their own environment and on their own terms. Um, but this study showed that it, it such, has such an important impact when they're allowed to select from what they want. I have another student who looked, did the same kind of comparison, but he kind of upgraded things. He, he looked at different groups, 
Um, and he was looking at, at stress levels. Mm. He looked at, at stress measured from behavior, self-grooming, pacing, a number of different things. Um, and then he also measured um, fecal hormones, looking at mm. a cortisol. Yeah. And yeah. again, the ones in the forest were in much better shape. They weren't e- exhibiting any of these stereotypies. Um, their, their stress levels were lower. It's just so much better to have them in the environment that they're that they crave that they're born to be in yeah and it seems i would assume that lifespan would be longer because cortisol's less they have you know their microbiomes are more diversified they're able to have different nutrients coming in i would assume that that would translate into healthier animals that lived a longer lifespan but I, I would assume common sense would say that, but that would be a very interesting study because just relating that to our domesticated dogs and cats, we don't, when we give them the opportunity to go outside and to dig in dirt and to have exposure to soil microbes and to be able to move their bodies uh, in a way and make choices and sniff where they want to sniff and and have some independent choices in a natural environment same thing. Studies are showing cortisol is less and behavior is better. And that translates into more social and adaptable behaviors and, and happier hormone levels. But it, it's sad that we have to even do those silly tests, but we do. And I'm thankful in one aspect that we're able to, to have proof and say, these are the things that animals need to do to be healthy. Yeah. The so, gut microbiome is is, is yeah. amazing. There's a lot of work coming out about it. We've done some work. I, I've collaborated with some people in, in China looking at the Tibetan macaques that, that live in, in high-altitude high areas in, in, in southern China, and their gut microbiome changes seasonally. And it's, it's all about it, – it's, it's making a, a adjustments for the food uh, – Availability. If they're eating more fibers because fruits are less available, sugars, things are are, are lacking in their diet, then their um, environment changes. The gut, the, the gut environment changes to be able to extract what they need from what they have to choose from. Yep, yep. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip of the iceberg. And then along with that, with some species, there have been the studies with the whole cravings that animals will crave certain foods at certain times of the year dictated by nutritional status and absorption yeah. it all works in this beautiful in this beautiful unison if the animals are allowed to make those independent choices and that's something yeah. that so often uh, at least with domesticated animals we don't we don't give our animals very many choices for a variety of reasons we want to keep them safe but we also believe that because they're domesticated, they don't really need to have choice. So talk a little bit, if you can, talk a little bit about what your thoughts are about, about domestic, how much have we lost through domesticating animals and how much is still there and and need, and as guardians, we need to be more aware that animals have desires and choices and preferences. And then 
honor that, which goes exactly opposite against what most veterinarians recommend. Of course, you have put them on one food and never change their diet. In fact, veterinarians will say it could be detrimental to ever change your dog's food, feeding the same food from the day that he is weaned till the day that he dies. Um, it just, and we have millions of beautiful people taking really bad advice. So when you think about all that you know, that the animals have taught you, what, what my colleagues will tell me is those are wild animals. And Dr. Becker, you're dealing with domesticated animals, but the premise is there's still so much that domesticated animals are denied that is not serving them when it comes to us controlling every aspect of their environment. I agree 100% with everything you've just said. Um, I don't think domestication has, has changed the biology of, of, of the species. I think we've changed their environment to the extent that, that they, they don't know, they haven't, had, they haven't had the experience of making choices. Yeah. But if you give them the in, environment, give them the choices, I'm, you know, we, we haven't done this study, so I can't base it on, 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 on data, but inside I have no doubt that they will, they will use their instincts, if you yeah. want to yeah. use that word, they will use their instincts and they'll learn from their experiences, just like wild animals, to maintain homeostasis, to feel good. Um, sometimes you think, ah, this is what I need. Oh, that's not what I needed. And then you learn from that experience. In, in my heart of hearts, I, I, I think that, that they can learn to make the right decisions. And that's what we need to be doing, not controlling their lives, but giving them choices and maybe, well, that, that, that goes into all the breeding practices and all of that, which yeah. we, we, we aren't here to discuss. But um, I think if, if, if they were given the proper environments that they, they will be able to, to do these things. Maybe it will take some guidance, but giving them one thing to eat from the day of, that they can eat solids until the day they die, would we want the same thing? I don't think there's a difference between what we want and what we need as animals. Humans are animals, plain and simple, biologically human. If we can use dogs for experiment, on on what we do to humans why 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 can't we think that they respond in the same ways they have this very similar needs and wants and things biologically as we do yeah that's perfectly said that's that's the buddhist in me i think we're all everyone deserves to be happy and happiness is you know you can look at it in different ways it's not objects it's it's immaterial things. It's how we feel. How When we get up in the morning, how we feel, what we want to do, how we interact with others. Animals are the same. We're, we're animals. We're just more in our heads and, and we, we can understand each other. So we have, have a clearer idea of what we need, what we think we should do and whatnot. But we really don't understand that component in animals unless you spend time in, in a group. And I've spent 40 years studying different species on their terms, following them throughout the forest, seeing what they're doing, seeing what they eat, how they treat each other, how 
there's really not much much difference between other animals and us. So we, we should start thinking about how we should how our relationship should be. Maybe we have to rethink that a little bit. You have such interesting work. I, I'm sure you hear this all the time. I would love to I would love to be able to tag along with you and see the fascinating work that you do. And part of it is you get a glimpse of wild animals being natural that is very rare. Uh-huh. It has to be it has to be really amazing what you're able to see and experience. It's 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 a privilege. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned it, it in the beginning. We don't have to go to Africa to have those experiences. We don't have to go. I, I mostly work in Asia now, but my first teachers of animal behavior were our pet dogs and cats yeah. that I, I grew up with, and. I was self-medicating probably when I was a, a very young boy, and I, I could see myself in the chimpanzees I was watching in Tanzania doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I know I can relate to exactly that that motivation to do things. I would eat weird things. I'd eat soil. I'd uh-huh. eat I'd eat seeds that tasted or smelled good on plants. I, you know, I. I, I Probably I shared parasite probably, <laughs> um, but I, I went through that whole the, the same experience with them. So actually, and then it became a, a scientific study. Exactly. Well, and it became your passionate career, which is wonderful. Actually, you brought up a point that I just realized. How important is olfactory to to the how with the animals that you're studying? How often is smell? In, is it always? Do they always smell before they eat it, or no? They're, they're using their noses all the time. Yeah. Some, yeah. some. Well, chimpanzees. This is a whole paper I, I've been wanting to write for a long time. W- when do they use their nose? How how well is their sense of smell? How does it compare to dogs, for example? I, I think we know physiologically the difference in um, taste. And probably smell from a mechanistic perspective. How many how many um, different cells are there in in the nose or on on the tongue that have all these different um, um, perceptions? But um, chimps are, are amazingly skillful at, at using their nose, even for tracking their partners. I've I've I followed. I have instances where. They would, would would be walking on a trail, and they you know one stops here and eats this, and another goes on, and and they they, they lose track of each other. Mm-hmm. And and the one that I was following, she came to a fork in the road, and she went down three steps this way, smelled on the on the path, three steps that way, smelled on the path. Mm-hmm. I knew where the group was going because I was I had to keep track of of, of 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 where I was going, and she made the right decision based on her, based nose, on her nose, based on her smell. Yeah. And it was j- just like yeah. a hunting dog. Yes. Um, all the foods that they taste, they'll look for the smells and things. The um, Mohammedi, when, when he's looking at, at, at a plant, and in all the literature that I've read from people around the world, smell and taste are, are what they use to determine the, 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 the properties of a plant. Yeah. And, so and I, smell I is totally, very 
very important. And I think that certainly in Western culture, at least we, because we are trained to smell, we've become kind of over hyper visualized and especially young kids in the U S they don't, we're not taught to rely on our sense of smell. And yet the rest of the animal kingdom minus birds, mostly, you know, we, that's a, it's a very important thing. In fact, they smell everything. Mammals smell everything before they would ever consume, consider consuming it. But that's something that, um, I think humans aren't some humans, Western culture, humans are not attuned to doing, but smell is really important. Yeah. Um, Physiologically, smell and taste are, are the same thing. That's that's we, we we taste food with our nose as well, and even after it's down in the gut, we still taste it with 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 certain cells in in the GI tract. So it, it it's it's with us the whole process. Yeah. 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 And I I wonder too if um you talk a little bit about primates seeking out bitter substances. Uh, and you know, they're, they're, they're seeking, they don't, they're not eating many of these plants because they taste good. They taste awful. Probably like poo, poo isn't probably necessarily palatable, but they're, they're eating it for an intentional purpose for a medicinal therapeutic purpose. So, um, I have seen many animals consume foods and you can even dogs, they'll put foods in their mouth and you'll see them chew it. And you can see that it's just awful, but they're going to get it down because they need it. And so um, it's not for taste, but oftentimes dogs will, they use their nose to discern their entire world. But there again, humans don't let their dogs smell regularly. We just don't have time to let them discern their environment through their nose, which is really too bad because there's also a, an emotional component, I think, for dogs and their need to smell. It's how they discern their world and we don't let them. Yeah. yeah. I, I was going to ask you, in, in, in the States, do they sell... Um, little boxes with, with, with grass you can grow to feed your cats or dogs? So, so they, they do, it's, yes, it's wheat grass and it's called cat grass and it's really easy to grow. And that's something that I absolutely try to teach all of my clients that we need to be growing and even sprouting, sprouting for animals, giving them access to live fresh foods. If you're not going to let them eat or discern grasses outside, they need some access to chlorophyll filled plants. And if you're not going to open your fridge and share, then you can grow wheatgrass or sunflower sprouts. You need to be growing something, some type of edible plant that you can just let them eat at, at libidum, whatever they need. And so it's, it's even that I have been heavily criticized because veterinarians believe that dogs don't have an off switch. And it's interesting because what I have found is maybe puppies will overconsume grass once they have about a diarrhea and then they're done. They don't do it again because they learned. So I actually have one more question now that I think about that though, the cedar wax wings, um, well, the, when I was in college, they would let us out of class early. I was always excited because the cedar waxwings would eat the fermented berries on migration and become drunk, intoxicated. Do you believe, I did notice in one of your lectures, you talked about alcohol being a, uh, an antiparasitic agent, and I was not aware of that. Do you believe that those waxwings... My instructors told me they just, it's the only food source. That's what, that's what they're eating. They're not, you know, they're, they would prefer fresh unfermented berries. All that's there is fermented berries. That's why they're eating them. And obviously the sequelae to eating fermented berries is they're intoxicated. What's your take on that? It's an interesting topic. There's a lot of species that do it. Elephants have been talked about, you know, this behavior has been described chimpanzees 
Um, there, there's a, a newspaper article, again, from Uganda, where chimps raided a illegal um, a distillery. These guys oh. were, were making um, alcohol <laughs> like, in like, the Like forest. moonshine or something? Yeah. Exactly. The chimps <laughs> went in, trashed it, drank it, and became oh. very violent. Um, oh, but there are a lot of examples in the animal kingdom where they're eating fermented fruit. And it, it part of it could be that that's the only thing there. But I don't think that's the only explanation. There, there may be some, some attraction to that, um, to, to, to the, to, to, to being drunk, not, not just the nutrition from it. You know, one, one mug of beer in, in, in Japan is, is equal in, um, carbohydrates to a bowl of rice. So many people don't eat rice and drink or, or, or they do it completely separately. You, you, you start off drinking and whatever, and then the rice, it's an insult to bring the rice until after you're done drinking. And part of that is probably, you know, with, with the carbohydrates and everything, people make sure yeah. not to have more, um, and they prefer beer over rice, I don't know. But I think, and, and there's ingestion of other substances as well that have psychoactive active properties. There's um, Tabernanthi, Iboga, I, I've written about that a lot. Um, the hunter-gatherers in the um, C Central African rainforest have noticed bush pigs, gorillas, chimpanzees, and wild and um, yeah, those, those those species dig up the roots of this plant, and they they become. They, they they run around frantically as if they're being chased by something. And Pro probably hallucinating, I would ass yes. assume. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And that's actually been demonstrated with, with chickens and cats and dogs in Europe. Hmm. So th this has a long history of, of this kind of research. Um, and they, the, the, the hunter-gatherers pass that information on to local agriculturists who they have a, a relationship with. They, they trade meat for ag agricultural products and mm -hmm. knives and, and things that they need in the forest. And then these people use it as a medium to communicate with the spirits, with their yeah. ancestors. So there is a hallucinogenic effect. And in the U.S., the substance, ibogine, that's extracted from that plant has long been used as a substitute for methadone to get people off of drug addiction. Wow. Wow. And that all started out by people watching animals ingest these plants. There's other yeah. examples. Um, high, high levels of caffeine in cola nuts in, ingested mm -hmm. by um, mountain gorillas and, and lowland gorillas. Other plants that are only available in high altitudes but have this invigorating effect. The, the caffeine, I think, is, is what they, they mm. um, attribute to. So animals are, are going after those kinds of things for more temporary physiological effects as well. And um, maybe, maybe there is some self-soothing in there. Maybe, you know, maybe they are going at, maybe they are deciding to consume those substances, not for th any therapeutic or medicinal value, but because they are self-soothing, they're, they're using yeah. them to self-soothe. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. In, in, in some level, it's all 
soothing with 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 Bernonia, with leaf swallowing, and with geophagy. We haven't talked about geophagy, but all of those. Well, it, geophagy has an almost instantaneous effect. It's 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 like like taking a, a cup or a teaspoon of um, Pepto Bismol. Oh, instant, oh, qu- quickly. It, it the stomach. Nice. Um, leaf swallowing, you get relief within six hours. It it, it purges out parasites. Um, and bitter pith chewing is within 24 hours. Wow. There are studies that show that rats can learn the opposite. They can learn to avoid something that makes them sick, not something that makes them better. They can remember that 48 hours after the fact. Hmm. This is all very nicely controlled um, laboratory studies. So that 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 learning process, learning cause and effect, is 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 all in place, but something, some psychoactive properties that can be used for many different reasons um, are also quick acting. So there's something for them to respond to there, but we don't know what. There is, there's uh, some beautiful people in the UK that are starting sensory gardens where they're taking, you know, an acre of land and putting a a fence around it so the dog can't get out and they're growing every type of medicinal plant or herbs primarily herbs and plants and they're just setting dogs with incurable diseases they've been to every vet in the world you know their skin is itch you know there's they've got atopy and their skin is itchy and they've got sores and lesions and and oozing bacterial infections and raging gi problems and they just set dogs free and the dogs will roll in the mud and apply the mud to where they're, they need it on their body and, you know, forage with different plants. And most of the time, the dogs will fix themselves after being, you know, with to fortify veterinarians and not having any relief with every possible um, pharmaceutical, just allowing dogs to spend time and giving them the options. They figure out what they need. It takes a little bit of time, but they're capable of doing it. And I would very much like to replicate that here in the States. I think that the best way that I could start research would be to have these dogs that are having major problems fix themselves and then be able to trace back what they ate and when, um, exactly what you have done with, with primates. We're, we're, we're trying to talk with, with I'm, I'm in, in discussion with, with people in, in research um, facilities and zoos around the world to do exactly like what you're talking about. Yep. Um, and it, it would save money. It would, in, in in many ways, it would be enrichment for them. Yes. Um, yes. And then see what 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 the vets say after after they see the results. Maybe yeah. we can change yeah. some minds. Yeah. Some of it is just just reaction to their profession, it, 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 it's a threat to it their is. livelihood, perhaps, I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, but we, we should never base strong opinions and, and influence the lives and well-beings of animals, of, of anyone, humans as well, without the science. That, yes. that happens too yes. much even today and in, in American society, the science is being ignored. Thank you for your time and your wisdom and all that you're doing. And I appreciate you speaking into the domesticated companion animal realm. 
your your wisdom will trickle down to be of benefit to companion animals. And that's exactly it's 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 how I will be able to get the conversation started. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your work. It's so important. Things, you know, we all all living beings deserve to be happy and we're not here to control their lives. We're here to share lives and done in a compassionate way, I think.